Welcome to Pints and Politics, the Thursday, June 18th, 2020 edition. Pints and Politics is a weekly discussion program of all things political. Joining me for this online discussion is our all-star politics panel. You know all of them. First of all, there's property manager and businesswoman Jenny Lancio. Then there's Curve Lake First Nations Councillor and Ontario NDP Indigenous Peoples Committee Chair Sean Conway. Then playwright and math teacher Tim Etherington. And then Peterborough This Week journalist and former mayor of Peterborough, Sylvia Sutherland. Thank you for joining me tonight. Now, I should remind all our listeners that the opinions you're about to hear on this program are the responsibility of our guests and myself, not this radio station. Trent Radio holds a broadcast license granted by the CRTC. This license defines the freedoms which this program enjoys. Okay, now, you know, I've only been doing this program for over two years now, and most of these programs have been panel discussions. So you'd think that by now I would have learned that the best conversations happen when panelists are able to talk about what they really are most interested in. So today, instead of working through the rambling scripted questions I used to prepare and circulate in advance, I've asked you each to list in bullet form what you'd like to talk about. We've done that, and I have this list. And of course, if you want to piggyback on someone else's topics, that's fine too. So it seems the one that rang a lot, the most bells, if I can say that, is the whole issue of racism in Canada as it's come up since we last spoke, which is back in May. How do we approach this? How do our public institutions approach this? Just quickly, I think we recognize that, in fact, it exists. That's the starting point. Right. No, I'm just, I think we also need to be prepared to call people out on it as well. It's one thing to recognize that it's there, and that's what I was saying earlier, is that I have been a little bit shocked at some people who, maybe not my closest circle of friends, but certainly some acquaintances who, through the whole, you know, kind of Black Lives Matter movement that we've seen happening over the past couple of weeks, have made some comments that I have found shockingly racist. And it takes a lot of courage to say something to somebody about that when you hear them making a comment that doesn't sit right with you. I have I have heard, like, from many people who I, I have had respect for, and I have been a bit shocked by it. Yeah, Bill, I think I think one of the first things that Canadians have to sort of wake up to is that, that in fact, the, the systems and, and laws and, and charters and freedoms that the majority of Canadians enjoy are not shared by all of the residents that live here. And, and I think, as Jenny and Sylvia have said, is, is to acknowledge that it exists and to acknowledge that it exists within our systems and institutions, our code of laws, our policing institutions, our housing policies, our healthcare systems interact with different individuals differently. And that's that's not the case. You know, someone once told me when I was entering into politics and policy that if policy is not universal and discretion of individuals is allowed within policy, individuals are able to fall through the cracks or to be denied access to service. So let's look to ways where we can inform our policy to be universal, to be fair, to be just, and to assist and and open doors for all all citizens, all residents, regardless of, of any sort of uh, differentiating individual circumstance. So I think acknowledging that it's there and then making those uh, taking the time to look inwards at, at how we do business, that business as usual isn't isn't working for everyone. So how can yes. we make sure that everyone can can find their place in navigating these systems? I, I think historically, you know, we, we've always Canada's built its brand. Right. And it doesn't necessarily follow historical truths that we're always the good guy. And uh, we, we try very hard to ignore and lead the things in our history that are, are very uncomfortable. 
um, you know, when we talk, say, about slavery in the United States, we're always the good guys in the receiving end of the Underground Railroad without addressing what happened when a lot of those communities came here, you know, famously in Africaville, but also places like Lucan in southwestern Ontario, um, which were originally black settlements. Um, right. But it goes to a deeper level, and this is something which, you know, it's an education I think we continue to get, is that it's not an issue of being overtly racist. And I think most people in our circles, most people we encounter aren't overtly racist. They're not saying racist things, but it's the more subtle level it works on that issue of othering where, you know, and manifests at times with things like, well, rhetoric in the conservative leadership campaign of taking Canada back or this notion of what is a real Canadian. There's a kind of implicit uh, suspicion uh, that that's there. It's something, for example, that her MP, Mary Monsef, is constantly battled against. And her assumptions are made about her, that there's something different about her, even though when pressed, a lot of those people would not actually utter a racist epithet. So I, I think this is something that it's, it's yeah, I think in Canada, we need to really pay attention. Of course, and, and Sean, you know, touched on the most glaring way this manifests, and that's in our treatment of the Indigenous population. That, you know, there's a sense of there's not a collective responsibility to, to recognize the completely disproportionate distribution of wealth and services across the country. 64, 65, I was working on the Toronto Telegram a number of years ago, back around 1964, 65, and I was sent as a woman to interview Lurleen Wallace, along with other female journalists in Toronto, and the question came up about racism, which Wallace practiced, obviously, in Alabama, and in the nicest possible way, Lurleen Wallace looked at the questioner, and this was 64, 65, said, yes, but how do you treat your indigenous population? And if we do look back, too, there's another, you know, there's no time to look into it now. But if you look at the origins of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, the Northwest Mounted Police, and why, in fact, they were established, which was largely to control the, I'll use the word Indian, it's the word they used, and Métis population in the West. Just two points. Tim, I did some, of course, like everyone else, brooded about this. Tim and I grew up about five kilometers apart in Montreal. Tim was a few years after me, but I reflected on... How did I first become aware of people who didn't look like me? Now, Montreal West, like, I guess, Tim's suburb, Westmount, uh, was completely white uh, as a child. That's what I remember. So when did I see black people? I saw certainly black people in entertainment, in sports, and, of course, when we used the train system, long family trips on the train out west to see grandparents, the porters who lived down near Atwater Street in Montreal. And th those were the only places. The other reflection, it's not a reflection, it's just an observation that I just wanted to put out into the, the ether here, is that there was an article that came across my screen today by Noam Chomsky, a petition actually, uh, saying why Norway and Ireland are better choices for a seat on the Security Council of the UN than Canada. And I have to say, I resonated with that one. You know, Bill, if I could just chime in because you brought it up. Uh, you're right about that. Until I went to high school, I, I went to Westmont High, which if people know Montreal is just a couple blocks from the old Montreal Forum. And by, yes. the time I started, by the time I started high school, it was the last English language high school in central Montreal. So it actually drew upon uh, a much larger neighborhood. And for that reason, we actually had a reputation of being a very bad school. About 20 percent of our of our school population was black uh, from Little Burgundy area. And while Again, there was not any overt racism. I'm sure, I'm sure it occurred, but it, it wasn't something that really crackled through the hallways. There was a sense of different community. And, you know, it's something that when I think back and, and as we grow, hopefully we get a little bit wiser and we shake through some of the more deeply embedded assumptions that we have. When I look back on that time, again, it wasn't that I or any of my friends practiced any overt racism or I think really had any blatant racist thoughts. But at the same time, there was a clearly delineated community that came from the different parts. And while different races did mix at that school, uh, it, it wasn't a fully you know, multicultural mosaic. And, and it was that sense of difference. It was that sense of othering rather than that sense, I feel to you. And that's the really hardest to, to, to flush out of one system is that sense of looking at somebody of a different race, different creed, different religion, and not being able to overcome the fact that, you know, they are exactly like you. 
a column coming next week in which deals with this issue, and uh, I just would urge you to take a look at it. And it will be, uh, it goes back to Shakespeare. That's all I'll say. Yeah, and maybe Bill, maybe I'll just pipe in a, a little bit. Uh, I received, uh, I, I received a, a press release today from the Chiefs of Ontario, Ontario Regional Chief uh, Roseanne Archibald, calling on for this year's National Indigenous Peoples Day, which is June 21st, to use that space that we have as Indigenous communities, albeit small, uh, to support our black and brown brothers and sisters in in their fight for justice as well and and to come together and and understand that these communities experience much of the same you know political violence and systemic oppression and that we're we're better together and I think that's a really important thing to take coming into this weekend you know it's we're coming into the solstice, and it's a Odem in Jesus this week, the strawberry moon. I fed my kids the first strawberries from our garden today. Very exciting. Wow. <laughs> but um, it, I think it's important that to note that that there's calls for, for Indigenous people and communities to use our space as well to, to support Black communities and to empower Black voices and, and show, show that solidarity to build a better world together. We're better all together. And if there was anything that won, even for a fleeting moment, a bit of global solidarity and staying home for a couple of months for you know a global pandemic, I think we can come together and, and work through systemic oppression and racism in Canada and across the world. So I think that's a really nice message. And, and I think we can leave the discussion at that for now. Okay. Yes, it's a, I mean, it's a huge topic. I mean, how, it's not something we can dispatch of within a few moments, for sure. Well, thank you. As I look at my notes here, another topic that several people mentioned that want to deal with is the Serb extension. Now, how is that sitting? How it came about? Well, they needed to do it. You know, we're not... We're not out of this thing, regardless of how the provinces want to want to reopen or or however. And it's going to be a long transition to get people back to work. So unless you want widespread permanent unemployment and poverty and, you know, remember that that most people living in Canada are one or two paychecks away from destitution. So there's, yep. you know, that's a failure of the capitalist system, I think, quite overtly. And, and the government stepping in and extending CERB, I think, is is a good step. But again, acknowledging that the universality of the CERB and the threatenings of clawbacks and jail time and fines, I don't think it's very productive in, in trying to, you know, keep an economy treading water. So I'm very happy that the federal NDP was, was able to call called bluff and for it to work out regardless of what adam vaughn says on twitter <laughs> just to um uh, just to kind of jump into what sean was talking about when they put out the call you know basically they've started this snitch line and anybody that you know that it is getting served that shouldn't deserve it like, are we really spending money on that right now? Like, is that really what we're what we're staffing government employees to do? Like neighbors snitching out other neighbors? Like, are people really doing that? Like, I'm like, because anybody like, does anybody feel compelled to call that line? Like, I, I think, Jen, I, I agree with you, but I think that was a response. I mean, that was one of the I mean, every day there's a new outrage from the Conservative Party. And that was. It was a few weeks ago, but that was a huge thing. Sheer was every day was screaming at the press that people were cheating the system. And so the liberals in their, you know, one of the weaknesses of, of, of the liberals when they govern is they, they always try to make these small movements, you know, one way or the other to placate everybody. And that yeah. snitch line was purely to placate all the noise they were getting because conservative voices are so amplified by the talking heads in our media that this, you're right, Jen, it was a completely asinine thing but it was on the front page of the national post for yeah. a while right so they they threw them a bone and did that and we wasted a bunch of money to so they could go on and scream about something else the next week and we're continuing to waste money on it 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 never made any sense you know the liberals won election in 2015 with calling out the kelly leach's barbaric cultural practices niche line 
it's it's along the same lines in in trying to find this way of othering the poor or marginalized for some sort of gain politically. So it's it's wedge politics at its finest, but also at its ugliest. It's terrible. Yes. I, I, I was just about to say what Sean has said. It certainly does have overtones. Was it barbaric or abhorrent? Either word, cultural practice. And that really, I mean, that every Canadian really should have been upset uh, with that request that you call on your name for their cultural like, practices just because they're different than yours. And anyway. Now, Sylvia and I were on a panel just a few weeks ago about uh, finances and government debts and so on, the money side of the pandemic. And an observation was made, and Sylvia, now I forget by whom, and maybe it doesn't matter, that uh, Mr. Shear has stepped on every rake in the garden. <laughs> and I thought that was, oh, a bit cruel. Now, go ahead. I'll say, I'll say the same thing I say every program, is that there really is only one path out of you know, long-term fiscally, and that's to raise the GST. One point produces about $6 billion in extra revenue, and right. it has a marginal impact on, on people who don't spend a lot of money. And But they're... I, I throw that out there because it's it's laughable, because what political will will there, will there be? No matter what party actually does that, they're going to have that hung around their, their necks for a generation, just as it happened to the Conservatives, where Chrétien ran against it and then balanced the budget on the back of the GST. Right. And as was observed in this money program a few weeks ago, someone said, uh, I think it could have been Paul Bennett, he said, remember... Every country on earth is going through this now. This is not like 1929. This is not even like 2008. This is a global situation, and every country is printing money. Therefore, the fear that Canada will be frozen out and no one will lend us money, it doesn't apply. So, And they, the money – Sylvia, I don't know what your memory of – that discussion was like is like now but they were surprisingly positive at least yes, on the uh, money side of this that you know in general uh, government is doing the right thing yeah no i, I agree with that observation but, and i think uh, i think actually i was the one that pointed out that this is different than 1929 because it uh, at 1920 well no i give paul credit but the other thing about 1929 was in fact it did affect all of europe as well, so it's different, but it isn't different. But yes, okay. there was. I think the end of that discussion was a rather optimistic outlook. And right. And we have to live. There is some political room there too, because since the 1980s, we've lived in this era of austerity and small government. And listen, there's never anything wrong with going through a budget, finding waste and everything like that. But it's been this unexamined truism in politics that government is nothing but bloated, you know, expensive programs. We can always find them, but this has gone on for about 35 years now, where we've constantly been trimming and trimming and trimming. So if nothing positive else comes out of this, maybe the, the age of sort of unexamined austerity will finally come to an end and we'll start to prioritize those things that government should spend money on, like things like frontline health care and social services. Right. And maybe um, fight back uh, with me if you don't want to move at this point. But. Is there a segue in Tim's comment to the whole issue of policing? We've all heard the slogans about defunding policing. I'd like to hear more about refunding mental health, social services, care for the homeless, affordable housing, etc. Along with the defunding, what about the refunding? Because that's how we got here. Well, well yeah, Bill, I, I tend to think of defund the police as a, a bit of a misnomer. And it, it really doesn't mean what, what it says. What it means is, does a police budget need to make up over 30 or 40 percent of a municipal budget or a provincial right. budget at that matter? Do we start to look at the way that the police systems work? The Police Services Act at the province, you know, it's a it's a big stinking piece of garbage, that legislation. And it really needs to, there's a couple of different things. So uh, let's disarm the police. Let's social workers train to go with police for wellness checks. God forbid a police officer shows up for a wellness check. The odds are that the person whose you know, wellness is being checked is going to be killed by a police officer. You know, it's just abhorrent the way that it, t it ties into this, you know, this age of austerity that Tim has mentioned, 
since the, the late 70s and the early 80s. And, and really, it's about setting priorities for what government should be. And what government should be is to develop community. It's not right. to balance budgets. It's to develop community. And you're never going to get there when we do have these systems of oppression and we have policing services that are interested in property checks or into upholding nonviolent offender laws and and just useless bits of legislation. And to be honest, red tape around things. You know, most people are mandated to have insurance on things. And, you know, there's no reason that we need to see the level of police violence and that escalation of force. It doesn't need to be there. It's it's 2020. You know, the original the original tenants of the first police force, I think, was England or France in the 1480s. And that's been mostly the the model that's been used. But the original mandate of a police force was members of a community that were ensuring that everyone was taken care of or something to that matter. And I'm sure someone on the Internet's going to correct me for that. But but we, we've got to get back to that and and get into a system where where we have individuals who maybe they are police officers, maybe they're not police officers anymore that are that care about the well-being of a community instead of the upholding of laws or set quotas or working within a provincial set of legislation that maybe doesn't apply to certain municipalities. So let's empower the municipalities. I think there's a huge discussion that needs to happen from from politicians, from community activists and, and, and healthcare providers about what is actually needed. You know, it's this and sort I, of always been, uh, yeah. Let me interject. Please, Sylvia. Yeah, I don't think, uh, I think Sean has, has made a lot. But first of all, defund the police. I gather our municipal councillors are getting a lot of email from a younger group, defund the police. And I agree, I don't think they know the definition of what defund is. It may have a couple of definitions. Do they mean take all the funding away from the police? Do they mean taking a, a look at programs, which is probably... It's undoubtedly a good way to go. But also, we shouldn't do with an axe what should be done with a scalpel. I would argue that the police service in Peterborough, for example, is not a violent police service. And But it worries me as I look about the, at the training of police uh. in, in, in this country and in the United States, in this province, say, uh, vis-a-vis, say, Germany. In order to be a police officer in Ontario, you have to have, uh, and I did look at, I think you have to have, you have 12 weeks training at, at Aylmer, plus another nine weeks, and that was preceded by a three-week orientation. Uh, so you have 23, 24 weeks. In Germany, you spend two years in training, and you have to have more training after that if you're going to carry a weapon. And it seems to me that we have to take a look at a the training of police, and this is not this is across the board. And it certainly applies to the RCMP, who who all they need, I think, is twenty six weeks training in order to become an RCMP and a high school diploma. Really? Well, yes, hear- in order to become an RCMP officer. Take a look at the training of our officers. Yeah. And also I think we have to take a, a, a good look at the personality of the people who enter the police force. Well, I, you know, I can appreciate the call for more in-depth training. If you don't know after 23 weeks worth of training that kneeling on somebody's neck until they beg for their breath and you kill them is not the right thing to do. That hasn't happened in Ontario. That has not happened in Ontario. You know what? It might not have happened yet. It might not have happened yet, but... I think what I find frustrating about this, I grew up in a home with a police officer and the racism and the brutality, like this is nothing new. I am in my mid 40s. This has gone on like I've known it my entire life watching it. Are there good police officers? Absolutely. Just like in every profession, there's good and there's bad, but it should not take 23 weeks of training to determine whether somebody is going to brutalize and kill someone. Either you are a decent person or you are not, regardless of whatever amount of training it is that you have. It is not just so whether or not somebody is, it's the whole 
approach to policing. Uh, no, it doesn't. It certainly should not. Jenny's quite right. Take 26 or 24 weeks of training uh, to, uh, you know, to point out you shouldn't yeah. be kneeling on somebody's neck for four and a half minutes. No. Or however, however long it was. It was longer than that, I think. But I think it, it serves, would be improved if, in fact, we did take a look at our training and that we did take a look at the at the psycho the personalities of the people we a closer look which they do in in most countries in Europe including Great Britain. Uh, I've just got I've got two things to add and you know Sylvia's point that well perhaps not an Ontario officer and put their knee to a man's neck and killed him. Oh, there's Sammy Yakim, there's um, uh, Defont Miller, and and all of those those other individuals who have been killed by police. In New Brunswick just two weeks ago, Chantal Moore, again, uh, murdered by murdered by police uh, during a wellness check, regardless of the situation. And the other point being, why the heck does the city of Peterborough need a light armored vehicle, a <laughs> tank, for, yes. for what, for clearing cars out of George Street? That's the raging, the raging grannies. <laughs> Tim Farkerson yeah. did speak to that. On the yeah, Tim, Tim Farkerson uh, um, uh, spoke to that. I saw him. Brock Grills uh, talked to him and posted on his Facebook. And one of the yes, reasons saw- is in case there's an incident at the airport. In case of plane crashes. In case of plane crashes, he said an armored vehicle. So the first thing that Peterborough Police A fire truck can do that. I don't know exactly to sell that thing. But I'd like to pick up on something that, uh, well, well, two things quickly, if I may. One, Sean, you know, when you mentioned that, the, there's a, it, it's going back a few years now, but there's a local story as well of a man named Levi Schaefer. Some people know, an old friend of mine who, same thing, was uh, shot by police when he was going through mental distress. And and, uh, and and I know it's something that still a lot of people in this community are, are upset about, including his family. Um, uh to pick up on something Sylvia says, there's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy. Listen, it's really hard to get a job as a policeman. Like, these people aren't just plucked off the street. It's a very, very competitive job. And, of course, there are people who are very good at that job and, and treat it with respect. But it does, because we've over-militarized our police, it does draw people who are drawn to those very things. Mm-hmm. And right. So the, the, the people who are drawn to it. And, listen, Sean knows this, and anyone who's worked in the bars downtown knows this. The most difficult people to deal with in the bars downtown are the police services uh, students from Fleming. Uh, <laughs> I'm not joking. I'm not joking. Yeah. No, no, no. I, I very violent cohort that no bartender really wants to deal with in their bar. And, and again, this doesn't mean all that all cops are violent. Not. I have some friends who are policemen. I have a friend who's who's an ordained minister who's now a policeman and used to work with with you. You know, a Jeremy Gabriel is a wonderful man, right? But the fact is, is that we've portrayed cops not as people who serve their community but as people who get all kitted up in 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 kevlar with automatic weapons and light armored vehicles so who do you think is going to sign up to do that for the most part you know something sylvia that you mentioned i'd like to come back to the the training of Police officers now, two of us on this call are or actively now or have been qualified school teachers. To teach in Ontario, you need three or four year degree. You need to go through teacher's college, which is now another two years. And you need to pass a police check or a criminal background check. That's talk around holding pieces of chalk, teaching children or adolescents. And yet here... We are one of the criticisms I've heard in the recent recent two weeks after the George Floyd murder was someone in the States, a commentator of the States saying, you know, this should be a, a fully qualified profession. You'd have to spend four years before you're a police officer. And Sylvia just shared, well, it's 26 weeks. Well, <laughs> I see a gap there for yeah, for Tim and I to walk into a classroom and do our thing, and I used to teach, you know, there's there's five or six years of preparation there. For a police officer with an automatic weapon, there's 26 weeks. Yeah, Ooh. and the question, the question too, Bill, is should all police officers carry an automatic weapon, etc.? Still, there's a good number of police in Britain that don't carry guns. The police in Iceland don't carry guns. And, and uh, as I pointed out, the police in Germany, if they're going to be armed, 
have to have additional training over the, 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 the long training they have in advance of that. I agree who, who, about the militarism. I think, you know, it, policing today is, I think, a much more complex uh, job than it may have been. I could be wrong on that. Uh, in fact, that's just off the top of my head. It probably always undoubtedly was complex. But I really think there has to be a, a, a much closer look at how you qualify somebody. And what really has disturbed me recently, and Sean mentioned the situation in Nova Scotia, or was it New Brunswick, Sean? You know, uh, but, and the RCMP, the last few weeks, and the, oh. that, not only them, that's true in Toronto, that did, that's tragically happened in Toronto. The RCMP's copybook recently has become quite blotted. And I, there really, I think, has to be a review yet again, of who gets into the RCMP, what training the RCMP has, and, uh, and, the, and, the, and the ethic with which they're working, the culture in which they're working. Well, that's the question, right? Like, is it who they're letting in, or is it the culture that exists in there once you get in? I think both, Jenny. Other thoughts on policing? The two topics we've discussed at length, of course, are linked because, you know, obviously... You know, I, I'm going to get treated different by a policeman than a young person of color. And so a lot of these excesses of police is also part and parcel of this, this systemic racism, systemic unexamined assumptions we make about other races. I'll give you one quick anecdote. When I lived in Peterborough in the mid-90s and was a long-haired you know, anarchical artist on Hunter Street, I, I would often be treated with suspicion by the police. And then I moved to Parkdale in Toronto. And it took me about a month to realize that, that every time I walked by a policeman in Parkdale, he'd give me the nod. Every guy knows the nod, right? That little perk nod that a man gives another man as like, well met fellow man. And it was weird because they treated me totally differently. And I realized it's because in a neighborhood that was very, very diverse and, and there was a lot of mental health issues and addiction issues, I was a healthy young white guy in his early 30s. So I was a brother to those cops there. Yes. And, and I was the exact same person. Well, Tim, you're, you're pressing a personal button for me in that regard, in that I uh, demographically, I mean, I'm old now and I have a white beard, but take off the beard and take off 15, 20 years and you know, put me in a police uniform, I would fit right in. I'm a tall, white, straight male. And that's given me a certain immunity. Uh, and I realize that when I comment about policing, I'm commenting about policing through my lenses because they really don't give me a hard time. I, I've been stopped. I have two speeding tickets. Uh, I, you know, stopped occasionally in a ride check. That's it. I mean, they don't, they, they don't uh, knock on my door. They don't pick me out of a crowd. And I think that's something in terms of linking back to Sean, the first remarks we made about racism. That's the sort of unconscious systemic privileging that certainly people like me have to be aware of. It's there. Yeah, it's a big old ugly can of worms, and it's it's got to get opened up and aired out, and yep. and it's a long time coming. I think for every instance of Canada's existence, it's been something that that is not that is not right, and hopefully this latest latest wave is is. Uh, is a way to change it. I think changing changing the nature of policing in Canada is a good first step, but it's only the first step, and it's a small step at that. Okay. Now, as I look at our list of topics, another one that came up a bit, the local scene, the closure of George Street was mentioned a few times. What did we make of that? Is there useful information for council to take away from that? Well, if I may, uh, I think there's... Yes, there is. It's not a hanging offense. Look, it 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 uh, it was obviously not. It was inappropriate to do that. But it's not a hanging offense. It was a mistake made. But what concerns me a bit, underlying it all, from counsel's point of view, is what uh, I so, if, could I interrupt? Could you just outline what was? Because some people not in Peterborough listening to this program might say, "What what are they talking about? What's this George Street thing?" Well, you thing? go ahead and do that, Bill. You introduce it. It's a close George. All right. Well, my understanding is they closed George. This was announced on a Tuesday or a Wednesday. We're going to close George Street for the weekend, 
and Terry Guile, the uh, Downtown Business Improvement no. Association, so people cried out and said, we don't have time, we're not ready for this, and they, no, they no, reversed the decision. No? Okay, you got, go ahead. You got it slightly wrong. It was not announced Tuesday or Wednesday. It was just done. Oh. I think, right? And that was part of the problem. And underlying all of this was a deeper concern. I mean, it was done, it, 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 but there was no communication with anyone, with uh, with members of council. I don't know if the mayor knew it was being done. If she did, she should have informed the other members of council. And she certainly, and, and whoever did it, certainly should have informed the, the DBIA whose plan it was not. They had a plan for, uh, for a proper closing of George Street. All of a sudden, George Street was closed. And But to me, it's, it, it's a communication issue here. And I think it's an ongoing issue with council, period, is communication with members of council. And it is, I think it is a problem. And the closing of, I mean, all the businesses complained. The weather, the weather was cool, if you remember, on the weekend. Nobody was sitting out anyway. There was no place you could do a pickup if you had ordered food from one of the George Street restaurants. And, you know, and to put it mildly, all hell broke loose. And, and Terry Guile said it was, you know, a debacle, et cetera. Well, maybe he should have toned his, his, his words down a bit. It's a closed George Street as the DBIA wanted it to be closed. It takes, you have to apparently weld or secure certain posts that into the street. It can't just be done by yellow, yellow, whatever they pylons or whatever they call them. And, it, you know, it, it, it was, I guess Terry was right. It was a bit of a debacle, but it's not a high, hanging offense. But I think what really should be taken a look at from one perspective is communication with council. I, I would tie it into um, two, two other things. First being that the municipalities and the public at large and even surrounding communities received no warning beyond the 24 hours into entering stage one or stage two or whatever the heck it was at the time. We didn't get that information from the province. We got it at the same time as everybody else did. There was no warning or preparation that was able to happen. Something that perhaps the city was being overzealous. And I'm sure if we have time, we'll talk about something else that was a bit overzealous in some <laughs> <laughs> I wonder what that might be. <laughs> um, you know, and that's, that's one way or the other. But the other point being that, sure, the DBIA may have had a... Uh, a plan, but the the plan that the city of Peterborough should be focusing on would be the Peterborough and the Kawartha's economic development reopening plan, which is a good plan. I've got my issues with their lack of input from the First Nation communities, of which we signed a friendship agreement with, but that's a different story. I think that was a good plan. It was a solid plan, and it was worked up with partners at the province. And were they following that? Were they following the DBIA? Really, I think in the in the great scope of things around the the riding, let's say, in the greater area, that PCAD would be the big fish and the DBIA would be the small fish. You're right. It's also that, you know, everyone, we don't quite know what to do because everyone kind of wants to get things going, but we can't predict how badly this pandemic is going to will be prolonged. And it does seem that more durable than we would have hoped, and it will linger in, in a significant way for much longer. So we want to do something. We recognize the economic peril, but we keep stepping our feet into things into a slightly different situation. And I think in a wider sense, that's going to continue happening because the world that's going to emerge from all this is going to be different. And so things like, yes, there were uh, safety precautions that weren't put into place for George Street, and we're allowed to do that. Um, but these are almost relics of the past time. And, you know, there are simple mistakes like that. There's, there's been horrendous decisions made by the provincial government that based more on the optics than that. I mean, opening up the child care centers without informing anyone. The education file has been a mess under Leche. Where, and this isn't an exaggeration. Where every major development in the education file is found out by press release. And everyone has to scramble and do it. So. You know, people need to step back and recognize that this is not going to be business as usual. Right. Um, Sean, Sean points the way of, you know, sort of regional conferences and decisions made that way, because every time someone steps and does something on the fly, they're going to, to go back to 
Bill's elegant way of putting it is a step on the fence or step on the rake. Step on the rake. <laughs> and I think, you know, like nobody can say, well, the last time we went through a pandemic, we did this and it worked. Like nobody yeah. knows, and all the business continuity plans in the world, I don't think would have prepared a small town like Peterborough for dealing with something like this. I think, you know, they're trying. They tried to do something. It didn't work. Do I think that the signs in the downtown merchant's windows that say, you know, City Hall or the mayor and council are destroying the downtown are a bit much? Like, I kind of think that ship had already sailed. I'm not sure that this is, like, going to be the demise of our downtown. I think that council thought it was a great idea. They had a very short time frame to turn it around. And I think they they tried. And I think you have to give them points for thinking outside the box. Where they fell short was like what Sylvia said was perhaps the lack of communication. Yeah. And I think in today's technology, I don't know that not communicating with people is acceptable anymore. So, and I, I think, too, though, Jen, it wasn't council. Council didn't know it was going to happen any more than Terry Guile did. Yeah, or council whoever was made... unaware that that was going to happen. It wasn't council. In our few remaining moments, could we just touch on the issue that uh, Tim has already tabled here for us? The uh, pandemic seems to be far more enduring than uh, we thought back in uh, in April. It's going to be around for a while. Our government levels, the tension, let's get back to normal from the business community and so on, versus public health saying go slow. And, of course, the fear of the second wave. What are our feelings about how we're handling that? I, I think this is we're entering the most precarious time now because you ma- think about the collective will we've had to summon for three months now. You know, we've been cooped up in our homes and it, it's had real success. You know, uh, we've managed to uh, bend the curve downwards. We've brought our cases below 200 new cases a day. Daily deaths in Ontario are lingering from, right. uh, you know, anywhere from about 10 to 20. This is great success. That took three months of massive sacrifice just to get it down to numbers that would have shocked us in late March. I don't think there's certainly too quickly there'll be no collective will to to, to close up again. So it's a I'm glad I'm not the one making the decisions because it's not going to be easy. There is no will. You know, what? one thing and it relates back to what we're just talking about, too. There are going to be mistakes made. And people should be allowed to make mistakes. I think, you know, the federal government's done an okay job. And really, the province has as well. And kudos to Doug Ford, I think, for putting chief medical officers of health at the forefront. The same to Justin Trudeau. I think opposition parties are doing a great job at making sure people don't fall through the cracks. And as Sylvia said, we will make mistakes, but... It's important that we are able to backtrack on things. And I think that everyone's been very clear, and at least I've been clear here in our community, that, you know, if we do see a spike, we're going back to a lockdown. We're still locked down here in Curve Lake. Uh, we're we're using right. our own metrics, and that's in consultation with our health officers, with the chief medical officer of health, with our regional partners and as well as the greater Mississauga nations. I think it's it's important that, that everyone take a take a serious look on what what needs to be done, what what's working, what can we continue and what can we do to allow people to resume their freedoms. Are there any jurisdictions that any of us can learn something from. And I'll frame that either municipally, provincially, indeed federally. Who's got it right in dealing with COVID-19? I don't know that anybody's got it right, because how do you know what the right thing is? We haven't really come through the other side of this yet. You know, like, am I hoping there's not a second wave? Absolutely. Like, I want my freedoms back just as much as the next guy the next person does, but I don't know how we're going to measure what the right thing to do was when this is all done and over with. I've had some success, have very, very uh, well-financed and up-to-date public services, uh, have a culture of of, of collective 
and have invested massive amounts of money into it. I mean, South Korea is the one that people constantly bring. South Korea is a very wealthy, compact nation. And they have invested, they put like plexiglass screens around every desk in schools. And there's a culture there of wearing masks when people are sick anyway. So I, I think, unfortunately, it's difficult to graph the experience of one place onto another. Um, and we have the unfortunate, we have the misfortune. It, we, listen, we're very lucky to be next to the economy. In this moment in history, we're in trouble in part because we're we're next to one of the worst countries in the world, and it's about to get a lot worse in the States. And that's what really scares yes. me right now. It's about to explode again yes. in the States. Yes. Right. And uh, I've been impressed with what's going on in New Zealand, but they are a series of islands out in the middle of the South Pacific. You know, <laughs> They have a leg up on the rest of us for all those reasons. Well, they, also have, they also have an incredible leader. Bring her people along with her. They do have geographically a, uh, a leg up. You're quite right, Bill, but I think there's also a, a remarkable leader in, in, in New Zealand who deserves some credit for this. I think that Jacinda Ardern, I think Jacinda Ardern is the only politician that this panel in its history has never said an ill word about. That's true. That's true. I'll say nothing bad about her, but let's recognize that Australia and New Zealand is Southern Hemisphere, and they're now entering their winter months, which are the flu months there. Yeah. Now, there have been articles out on, I think it's eight countries who have female leaders, and they're leading the pack in terms of dealing with COVID. Uh, the Finns, the Iceland. Also, Bill, in the United States, it is the female mayors. And in some cases, the female governors who are uh, doing a good job. I'd just like to throw that out there. You think we have the cause and effect backwards? Is that place is that a progressive? <laughs> yeah, no, but female leaders. Yeah. Like, okay, I, 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 Sylvia for prime minister. All right, now we are winding down here, but uh, I feel I would be remiss. Yeah. <laughs> well, I would be remiss if I didn't ask the question. Is anyone uh, uh, keeping track with what's going on in the states with their looming election? And is anyone oh. terrified or anything in between? Well, I, I am keeping track. I've kept track of American politics since I was 12 years old, and I, I am keeping track. I am cautiously optimistic, to use that overused phrase these days, that in uh -huh. fact that the Democrats will not only take the White House, but we'll take Congress, and right polls would indicate that. McConnell's in trouble, uh, Lindsey Graham's in trouble, uh, but it's a long time until the second Tuesday of November. Yes, indeed. If the election were right now, Trump would lose and the Democrats would take the Senate, and uh, I shouldn't think that Trump is a magician just because he defied expectations in 2016. He's in a lot of trouble. There's, t there's time for him to turn it around. This isn't 2016. And everything he's done the last couple of weeks to try to reset his brand and it has really talk about stepping on rakes. I mean, yeah. they have blown up in his face. He's got a couple more weeks, literally, to change the narrative going into the next election, and it, it, it's going to turn into a death march. I think that we, I think that we are underestimating the level of crazy that is alive and well in the state. But listen, Jay. I don't think it's going to be as much of a landslide. Like, do I hope that my imaginary boyfriend Joe wins the election? For sure. <laughs> <laughs> I, thought, I thought he was my boyfriend. Look, you know, the other thing is, though, I don't Trump know. Is, Trump is killing off his video. You know, he's having this huge rally in in Tulsa, shoulder to shoulder, no mask, etc. I mean, he's, he seems to be determined to get rid of his own supporters. But the sad thing is, for every one crazy that drops off, there's three more waiting in the wings. Like, there doesn't seem to be any end to them. Jen, oh, Jen, Jen, Sylvia, your, your affection for Joe Biden is why he's probably going to win. His advantage among women is about 15 to 20 percent right now. And I, listen, I say this all the time when politics come up. In, modern, in the modern era, politics are one in the suburbs. And Trump has lost the suburbs, and he, he's trying to get them back through a law and order Nixonian 1968 trope that isn't working. I don't know how he wins the suburbs back. It's why Justin Trudeau keeps winning. Justin Trudeau wins the suburbs. All right. 
And I'm afraid on that note, we should wrap up. But thank you so much, Jenny, Sean, Tim, and Sylvia, for your time and your ideas. This has been our 23rd program of the 2020 season. This is Bill Templeton.